Hello and welcome back to The Game Pit. This is episode 78. I'm Sean and we have been on our travels to Eastbourne, Ronan. We certainly have. It was the 12th iteration of LobsterCon, where 120 members of London on board head down to the south coast of England, take over the Cumberland Hotel and play games for three or four days. Although I was busy organising for about half of it. And Sean, you went there for all of it and you gave up a whole day running the Bring and Buy sale because you're a selfless little angel of gaming. Aren't I just? Yeah, I hardly played anything of note, to be honest. And the games I did tend to play, Ronan, were of the short variety. Yes, indeed, which fits into the format of this episode. We are going to run through a dozen games that either one or both of us played over the weekend and just give you quick one-play first-impression reviews of them, just to give you an idea, possibly the games we don't plan on playing again or, or wherever it might be, but, but just a lot of recent releases, just a, a taster menu, shall we call it, Sean? We're going to crack on into this, as Ronan said, but as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there for gaming goodness galore, and if you wish to download our episodes, we are on Stitcher, iTunes, and of course, Podbean. Right, Ronan, I am going to kick off with one of the first games that I actually played at the convention, and it is King Domino. came out at Essen this year, and what it is, it's a very simple tile-laying game with a draft for tiles based on player order. The first player in order will get the first choice of tiles. The best tiles tend to be lower in the order, so if you get the best tiles, they tend to make you towards the end for the next round. And what you've got to do is place those tiles by matching at least one of the sides. Why are you trying to do this? Well, you're trying to build areas of different terrains, and then you're going to score them by size at the end. The only, the only slight add-on to that is that some of the tiles have crowns, and the crowns act as multipliers. So... That's pretty much it. It's it's a very quick game and a very simple game, Ronan. Did you have a chance to play this at all? I played it before LobsterCon, Sean, like sort of a game weekend we had around here, uh, Rorocon. And I have to say, it's very quick, very simple, probably deceptively so, because towards the end, you're limited to a 5x5 five five grid and what you can do. When you're placing the tiles, when you place a terrain, it must go next to another piece of the same terrain, if possible. And that can dictate the shape of, of your playing area as you play. And there's probably slightly more thought there then at first impression and it's got that nice turn order thing where i want that tile but it gives me rubbish choice for the next time you can see the next one's coming along so it's the tiniest bit of foreplaying it gently touches on different gamely elements for me and i actually thought this was a, a very decent filler game it was good i'll be happy to play it anytime what were your thoughts on king domino sean yeah just what you said there mate really it, it kind of packed in some some elements that you would find in sort of more in-depth games on a very very light scale just tickled you with them slightly if you if you will and, it, it and looks the blue pretty orange on the tickle table. stick out it did have the blue orange tickle stick it, it looks very pretty on the table only thing ronan that castle very nice to have the castle and your little meeple inside <laughs> the castle but didn't really serve any purpose other than that it was a meeple in the castle if you can't make a story out of that sean that's not the, that's not the publisher's fault <laughs> I, I did ask g g who brought the game along and taught it to us i said like what, what is that he goes it's 
to remind you what colour you are. Right, thank you. Thank you, G. <laughs> Even though in those colours do never intertwine at all, Tank, but that's cool. You're such a we'll judge. With that. But yeah, I... I am a judge, but I actually really liked it, and I would happily play it again, and I may even pick it up as a very quick filler, is what it is. Lovely, indeed. Right, moving mm. on. A slightly heavier game, another one that came out of Essen this year, was Papa Paolo. The best Papa. thing about it is <laughs> every time someone come up to the table, because it's unfamiliar, as it has a wide release, people asking what you play, and the whole four of us shouting Papa Paolo at them, because we were a little bit in our cups. Anyway, if that's the best thing about the game, what was wrong with it? Well, it's themed around you're running a pizzeria or two or three in uh, an Italian city, and you're playing down pawns on an action grid in order to either claim tiles to add to your area of the city or to take actions which are related to the column or row that you're in and you're looking to get more deliveries or be able to deliver further or or make more pizzas or make some money because the second part of each round after you've done that and created your own little grid in front of you and loaded up your pizzerias of pizzas is to make deliveries and you bid on making deliveries now there's some really funny thematic elements to Papa Paolo in that it appears that I'm paying to be able to deliver pizzas to people. And the fact that you're building your own city doesn't really fit in that well. But that's all okay. Yeah, with the Euro theme doesn't fit that well with it. Not that fast because the auction and the action selection were actually really interesting. And then mechanically, it was interesting up until the final two minutes when you score, when the scoring is all very close to each other you sort of building up your own tracks your own attributes as to how you can deliver and how many pizzas you can make and stuff and you score points for being along those tracks and it's all much of a muchness we're all oh i score four you score five then i score five and you score four and everyone was very close and it felt like for the clever mechanisms in the game the scoring was redundant and it really it fell at the final hurdle for me papa paolo well, it's one that we looked at before Essen actually started, and there's one that we actually didn't manage to pick up over there, or I didn't manage to pick it up over there. And I must say, it looks lovely with all the little pizza boxes, and it was drawing a lot of attention when you were playing it, possibly because you were screaming Baba Paolo every 10 minutes. <laughs> but I have what, from what, what I've read about the game and deciphered is how important is the turn order a lot of people are saying that turn order is is almost vital yeah but the turn order is set by the auction anyway and you can always sort of plan to take actions to take gold which means you'll definitely win the next auction so you can steal turn order i'm not convinced by any turn order issues to be honest so uh, you've got the ability to to guide yourself very much in where you're going so if you are short and you need to get up first you you just take more uh, gold actions there's an interesting bit where there's money rewards for having the majority in each column in each row and that's definitely within your remit to maybe sacrifice complete efficiency on an action to reap in more free money if you like again thematically why you're getting that i just don't understand at all but if you're behind a certain area the game is loose enough for you to be able to make up for that I think the thing that put me off it in Essen is that was the rule book. Now I don't know if you actually learned it from the rule book or somebody taught you, but that was kind of it was kind of towards the end of that Essen fever was setting in and the rules blindness was kicking in and yeah I just didn't get on with that rule book at all. But it does it seems a lot better than I thought it would be for me from a distance. 
I think the rule book not tying in is and I half back to that thematic issue. It's a bunch of rules and they don't tie together thematically. So until you play it, I, I can see it making absolutely no sense whatsoever. And certainly when I read the rule book, I wasn't too interested in the game. Playing it, like I say, 95% of the way through, I was, oh, this is actually a really decent game. Just just a near miss, a flop at the end, I'm afraid, Papa Paolo. Moving on to yet another Essen release, it was Four Gods, and this one is a real-time tile-laying game, where you're basically drawing tiles out of a bag. Now, let me just say, everybody is drawing tiles out of the same bag, possibly at the same time. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. You've got to match terrain type. You are building in in a circle of a, depicting a world, and you're building from the outside in, and from four different terrain types. They are specifically linked to the four gods, as the title would suggest. You also have the chance to pick your god. The gods start off in a, in a pool, and as part of your action, as part of this real-time action, instead of just drawing a tile, you can pick what god you want to be. Now, why why do you pick this in the middle of the game? Because you are supposed to be looking to see what areas are building up. So if the fields are building up a bit more and the mountains aren't doing well, you're not really going to want the mountain god. So you're going to pick the field god, but then it's do the mountains build up later. So it's a kind of push-your-luck element there. When you do pick your gods, you've got a load of meeples that represent that gods or their, their avatars on Earth. And one of your actions is to lay these these gods onto the particular terrain type and it's an area control thing so you you're controlling that area so if there's five tiles with all mountain on them then you'll score at the end of the game for those five tiles you're scoring for each of those areas there's also cities that you can lay if you lay a city then you score five points at the end of thing, but if it gets surrounded, it gets taken away and somebody else will score points for that and you will lose those points. So that's basically what you're trying to do with Four Gods. It's it's just pure chaos. <laughs> like, as I said, everyone's, everyone's diving into that bag. You're not really taking any, paying any attention to what other, everyone else is doing. You're, and you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be seeing what people are using, what people are placing down in front of them that they can't use yet. You're supposed to be using everybody else's tiles at the same time. So not only are people reaching across to grab it out of the bag, not only are they reaching across to grab the cities, not only are they placing tiles in similar areas, they're also reaching over to other people's tiles and pulling them. Just, what? What happened? It was madness. I I never anticipated for one minute it would be anything other than madness. For a real-time game, when it's competitive, you have to either have something that slows down the real time that makes thinking as important as the real time aspect, or it has to be super light in that it's just quick reflexes doing something like double jungle speed, something on those lines. That's how they work for me. This is neither fish nor fowl where you're sitting, you've got to think, and also you've got to be quick. It just takes away any element of game to me. I'm like, why am I bothering? Why I, I, I want to play either a thinky game or a quick game. And one that sits in the middle, I just this is zero appeal to me, Sean. I don't I don't sure you could even talk me into this game. I wasn't a big fan. Natalie wanted to play it. We we got the game out, started learning the rules, and uh, a couple of people came along. Tom, who was one of the people that came along kindly had played the game before and kindly explained the rules to us and he actually said when we were like but what everyone dives into the bag he goes yeah you kind of got to be polite about it otherwise it gets a bit nasty <laughs> so <I was> like <laughs> right 
<laughs> so it's a polite, real-time... <laughs> Four gods to the game. drinking game. Four gods to the fighting game. <laughs> yeah. Four gods the I'm not going to play it game. Yeah, Four gods I really didn't like it game. <laughs> so anyway, moving on. So late at night, talking about drinking games, in the early hours of the morning, someone had the genius idea to crack out Mask of Anubis. Now, I had played this a couple of times before LobsterCon, but I got in, I think, seven games in a row of this, of a rotating cast of variously inebriated people. Uh, Mask of Anubis is, uh, came from Japan brand, again, at Essen 2016. In essence, you're trying to solve a maze. The way you're going to do that is you're going to have either four or seven players and those players are going to put a phone into a mask, which is the mask of Anubis, and then each player on their turn is going to have a set amount of time. They're going to find themselves standing static in the maze and they're going to be able to look around 360 degrees and all up, down, or wherever you like, all directions, and describe the features they can see from where they are, be it the actual geometry of the maze, are they in a corridor, a T-junction, a corner, features like pictures or statues or plants or torches. You've got guards that walk backwards and forwards. You've got things that appear on the floor. Well, I don't know what they're supposed to be called, but we gave them all various rude names as we were drunk and each person will find themselves standing in a different position in the maze while the person who's looking into the phone through the mask is describing what they can see the other players are using tiles to build up hopefully an impression of what they've seen and then once either the four or the seven of you have all had a turn looking in the and everyone else has been building you're trying to put together the pieces of the maze each of you have seen individually into a coherent whole structure then you press for the solution on the on the phone and there's a dog that starts at the beginning which you can see one person will be able to see the dog and one person will be able to see the exit and the dog will tell you how it moves to get to the exit and you've either done it correctly or you haven't it plays quickly it's certainly innovative it's certainly engaging and lots of the group are active at once it's a lot about communication and how you see things and before i go any further sean mask of anubis well, I managed to definitely avoid getting any games of this played, and it, despite it is the single game I want to play the most at the moment, it looks absolutely fantastic. So all I've really got is a couple of questions for you, Ronan. Hit me. Uh, what's the best player count? Uh, fun people. Doesn't matter. You could play two player. Okay. I mean, two player is probably a bit low because you're going to have seen the same things as each other. Because it's not a tight set of rules. It's best played when the person who's just seen doesn't explain and correct the map that's been built exactly. But as long as you have three or four, you can just play with that many. But we played with seven. It was very relaxed and chatty and laughing. And maybe a couple of people were building the map. One person would be looking. You might be listening. You might be chatting to your friend. It, it, it's cool as a party game as well. It's, it's just a lovely, flexible, interactive sort of a system. So best player count? I don't know, mate. Okay, fair enough. This question stems from something that you actually said to me. Because uh, you were playing a drunk version of this. And <laughs> you said to me that it kind of got to the point where you were just... It was getting a little bit easy for the the regular group that were playing it. So I'm wondering how much longevity it's got. It was still loads of fun, though. It, it, I mean, it, it was great. It was brilliant. How much longevity? Um, I think you have to be aware of your communication conventions, like lots of these games. If you, if you make certain conventions or shortcuts, you're making the game too easy. We definitely found by game four, five, six, you couldn't correct the map. 
whatever the map looked like, you just go, okay, forget about it. Thankfully, most of the time, by the time we got round to all seven clues being given out, and then we're trying to put the map together, uh, people were drunk enough to have forgotten exactly what they'd seen, which made it quite challenging. But it was amazing how much the group think came through sometimes. People go, I think, and I think, and then oh, we, I'm not sure we actually saw that bit, but between us, do we think it fits together like that? And ta-da, and it did. Uh, you see, you're kind of picking up more than you're vocalising a lot of the time. When you look back on the map 15 minutes later and you go, oh, no, I, I think that fits like that. Uh, it's quite a nebulous description because it, it's – it's an experience, not a tight game. And, and it's that shared experience that I found was lots and lots of fun with it. And everyone was laughing, having fun. And when you fail, it's definitely got that thing of, oh, just one more, just one more. And then when you do it, you're just like, oh, because there's harder challenges and you couldn't advance through the app. We weren't sure exactly how to get to the harder challenges, but again, that might have been what time in the morning it, we were doing it. But, but when you do get too good at it, there's, there's harder challenges on the mobile. So so on, on it's a free app that comes with the game, by the way. So, so you, know, you can advance it from there and almost self-handicap, if you like. Brilliant. Well, I will look forward to my first game if I ever get a game. I think G owns the only copy of this that I know of. Um, but yeah, cool. I'm going to move on to my next game, and it's another game that G owns the only copy that I know of, and it is Tumple. Tumple is a very simple game where you're going to place two little square coasters, if you like, just wooden platforms on the table, and then you're going to roll a dice, and then you have a big stack of wooden rectangles and this dice is going to tell you how to place these wooden rectangles so either on the side or on the wide bit or the or the thin side or even on the ends it also gives you the opportunity to place little plastic tokens now if it says to place a white one that means you can't place on top of where that white token is placed so you can stitch each other up a little bit or if you can place a yellow one can we stitches you up even more because that one you can't place on the whole surface area of the place that is the block that it's placed on and that's pretty much it you're rolling the dice and you're trying to to build this sort of structure upwards and try not to knock anything off because if you do knock anything off anything that hits the table beyond the initial platforms comes into your possession and at the at the end of the game when all the the blocks have been used whoever's got the most is the loser there's only one loser and everyone else wins I had so much fun playing this. I don't know whether it was just—it was just something that I needed because I—it was after the uh, bring and buy, and we were the old heads were frazzled. We'd had a few beers, and I just needed something silly and fun to get into. And it was absolutely hilarious. G was just being the most jammy so and so in history. He kept rolling tokens every turn, the token, token. So he all he was doing was stitching everybody up. I ended up getting knocking seventeen blocks off in one go, much to the laughter of the table and i think everyone would play to have a thoroughly good time and i'd say it was my hit of the whole weekend wow <laughs> all it takes is something simple with a bit of take that and suddenly lobsters are all over it. <laughs> it it sounds fantastic fun everyone was telling me to have a go at this i think it was this and splash were the two sort of dexterity games people were telling me to have a go at i didn't get a chance to have a go at either of them but your description your enthusiasm after you played the other people from the table's enthusiasm your description there all i can say is i am absolutely hanging much as you are from asking anubis to play tumple it just sounds brilliant 
yeah, really simple. And I think it, what makes it is the dice, the, just the uncertainty of the dice and the the groans when you have to lay one on its end and you've got like a five-story platform already in front of you with everything sort of teetering on the edge of falling. Oh, no. You're very good. <laughs> Rona, what's your next game? Okay, so the last game for this quick first half of the episode is Far Space Foundry. This isn't a 2016 release so much. It's a Kickstarter from a year or two ago. I didn't get it on the Kickstarter. I think it was shipping. I can't remember why. I definitely had my eye on it, but for whatever reason, I didn't back it, but I picked it up secondhand recently. I took it down to Eastbourne, and it had the most unsalubrious of beginnings for trying to learn and enjoy a game i had never even read the rule book completely when on the very last day on the monday people were like hanging around watch we play and i said oh, i've got this with me i'd like to play it i just got it do you fancy it and they were all chilled enough to go yeah cool and i will be teaching the rule book they were like yeah cool turns out the rule book is actually pretty good it's a simple system and what it's based on is you are the people making the supplies for a frontline sci-fi war. So there's orders in for drones and laser guns and robots and bits of ships and shields and stuff. Uh, but you don't get to use them. That, that's far too exciting. You're, you're the logistics behind this. And you're going to do this in two distinct halves of the game. In the first half of the game, you're going to be collecting from two different asteroids. There's red and blue ore. And you're bringing them to a facility. And you've got shuttles that bring them in facilities. And you've got shuttles that bring them out of the facility uh, into your front freighters and your freighters are in the second half going to take that ore deliver it into a foundry turn it into the goods required at the front and then bring them back out to your freighters again and the two halves play similarly but with tweaks it's all about there's eight spaces in the foundry in either half and where you go to put your shuttle in dictates how much ore or how many goods you can move so you have a hand of cards there's a one two three card and there's a four five six seven eight and you can get more cards by going in going to canteen hiring alien pilots or also come with freighter ships sometimes to give you more capacity but let's say i played the four card to either go in or out uh, let's say i was going in and the four was full then the five was four and the six was four. And actually I got in in the seven because I tried to go in four different places. I actually got four capacity to move around. And there's a Mancala thing almost of efficiency of actions of, I don't want to go into the number of the car I played. Usually I want to be able to move along and get multiple actions. And every time you take a shuttle in or out in either half, you're opening up opportunities to other people. But not only that, the area that you go in or out of that one to eight, they've all got different actions and the different actions will be like hiring pilots or you might be able to upgrade goods in the second half. There's very different things you can do. You can make some money and there's very little money in the game, but it kind of gives you access to different actions. And at the very end of the game, what you're trying to do is have all that ore that you take to the foundry you've got to get it off your freighters while your freighters are empty you've got to upgrade them by taking one of these actions then you've got to get enough goods back out onto your freighters to make sure that all your freighters there's no space on them because there's minus points for not upgrading your freighters minus points for space on your freighters but there's plus points for all the things you've made and i'm i'm not sure if i'm making it sound complicated or not but it's certainly not complicated it's play one card on your turn put the shuttle in or out of that bay whether it's depending on whether it's empty or not uh, and for that beginning of learning from the rule book a kickstarter game sounds like it could be quite a confusing theme actually simple i'm going to overuse that word elegant gameplay vaguely thematic if thematic enough that it all tied it together and sean i was 
really quite impressed my first play of Fast Space Foundry. I'm actually really glad to hear that, Ron, because I actually had a little sniff, as I do with most Kickstarters, of this when it was on Kickstarter, and I was terrified. It just looked like a sea of shapes and icons, and it just looked really confusing, and it, re- it just put me off. I thought, oh man, if that, that hasn't got the best wall book ever, it's just going to be impossible to play. But I'm really glad that it is a good rule book, and that it isn't as confusing as it sounds one of the things people are saying about it because you you have a you have a b board you're sort of an a game and a b game is that right that's right yeah two halves a a and b yeah two halves yeah than the foundry yeah people are people are saying that for your first few games until you know what you're doing you're kind of fishing in the dark on the a game and it when the b board flips over it all becomes apparent like oh that's right that's why i was doing that and some people who don't sort of hit the right notes in the A game are kind of ruled out for the B game. Does that make any sense to you? Well, the point spread was 21, 19, 11 and 2. (laughs) There might be a little bit in that. I actually think that it's not so much confusion as to what you have to do because it's all laid out beforehand. You can see the goods from the very beginning. This is what you need. And there's, there's three different types of ore. There's red, blue that you can get raw. And then there's purple. You can combine a red and a blue to make a purple, right? And you use blue and purple to make things. And it tells you this is what you need to make these goods. So I can't see there being that much confusion about that. I can see the confusion being about the efficiency of scoring. One example is they might want batteries, at the front but they only want six batteries so that's how many you can make between all of you now batteries are one of the rare things that you put in one ore and you get two goods back out so when you're trying to make the higher value um, goods that they want at the front you usually have to put in two ore to get one good out so you're emptying a space in your freighter which will cost you points at the end of the game so batteries despite they're only worth one point each are valuable because they double an ore but to know that going in, you're not going to work that sort of spatial aspect out going into it, or you'd be very unlikely to. So I can see things like that, the intricacies of the game, and they're not intricacies, they're not deep rules, they're just how to play well. I can see you not seeing that originally, but I don't want to overplay this, mate. It's actually a nicely simple game, and I think that now I know how to play it, if I taught it a second time, I'll be fairly confident I'll be able to cover all that with people. I'll be able to remind them as we went and say, like, don't forget, or this is an issue, or just consider this for a minute, and hopefully keep people ticking over and headed in the right direction, because it's an hour or less to play, and no, nothing fiddly. That's the lovely thing about it. The point scoring isn't fiddly. The actions aren't fiddly. The iconography is not fiddly. It all works. Very good. Very good. I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear it. I look forward to giving it a go. Indeed, indeed. And uh, that draws to a conclusion the first half of the show. Uh, well, that was very we formal. keep it fairly like snappy. <laughs> I think we kept it fairly snappy. So uh, long may that continue in the second half. Let's snap along. Okay, onwards and upwards, as I tend to say quite boringly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Charmingly. Charmingly, yeah. Well, we'll stick with that, shall we? We're going to move on to a game that we have previewed in the past and have finally got to play at Eastbourne. It's Oceanos. What is Oceanos? Uh, Very quickly, you're exploring the ocean. 
And using the draft mechanism in which everyone has dealt a certain amount of cards and they're going to choose one or possibly even two cards depending on their powers of their submarine, more of that in a minute. You are going to choose your cards and you're going to hand every the rest of them to the first player who is the captain and then the captain is going to choose between all the all the discards from everybody else why are you taking cards well you're building the ocean floor so you're mapping out the ocean you're going to start in three rounds you're going to start at the top of the ocean and work your way down to the bottom the floor of the ocean what you're trying to do is you're trying to collect various sea creatures and however many you manage to collect is going to score you points you're trying to get contiguous lines of coral the more the better you are sending divers down for sunken treasure and you're also trying to improve your submarine now your submarine is, is driving your game your submarine will tell you how many cards you can draft your submarine will tell you how many animals you can collect and various upgrades for, for the submarine to do that you have to get crystals and a a substation or of some sort in a certain sequence and that's pretty much Oceanus we have talked about it in the past so I will jump straight in and say it's a nice gentle tickle of a game there's, there's nothing massively nasty about it I wouldn't say it's very exciting but I, I enjoyed my time it's one of those games where you are you're talking with everybody, you might be having a beer, you might get up and have a, what everyone else is doing, having a look at their cards and have a little look at somebody else's game and come back, you won't have missed much, but you're enjoying the ambience around you, Ronan, I would say. There's been a problem with this podcast recently, Sean. There's been a rot at the heart of what we were founded on. We were founded on disagreement. No, no whinging. God, this is boring. And... It makes the horrible crime of being fussy and boring and incredibly random and with rubbish scoring. Fussy? It's fussy. fussy. It is fussy. How is it fussy? Because you're the thing with the you upgrading your summary. I keep two, you keep, I keep how many and you keep one. And it's, it takes up a load of table space. The scoring is not exactly clear. You can set yourself up for a big score and then just get hosed by cards. If you've got this submarine, you can upgrade, right? And the upgrade will allow you to get more cards or score points at the end of every round or collect more animals to score more points or allow more divers to collect more treasures. There's various different things you can upgrade on the submarine. Just all of it is pointless. Everyone upgrades everything to level two eventually. And all that it's come down to as to who wins is who got those upgrades earliest by getting a lucky draw of cards at the beginning which gave them an advantage at the beginning of the game and then they just rode that in to win and the only thing that will stop that them was doing me that, that was me the only thing and that will stop them win. doing it is luck of the draw again if they get hosed and it all comes down to luck of the draw mate i don't i don't necessarily agree i think there's there's enough options there where you can choose to take the krakens and just have a little bit of risk i'm not saying that there isn't luck of course there's luck there's plenty of luck in this game but i enjoy the draft mechanism i find it interesting i don't find it fiddly or fussy at all i thought like how many cards do you get oh four how many cards do you get three three okay cool and then the person the person themselves will decide how, how much they're keeping and give the rest to the captain i don't find that fussy i actually found that quite interesting I think it was a, a stunning game to look at. I didn't find the submarines fiddly at all. I quite no, no, no. I don't, this, choosing the what to upgrade first. Physically, is not fiddly. The draft itself, as a draft mechanism, is not fiddly. 
it's putting it all together. It's, it's what am I getting back from this game for this massive tableau of cards in front of me for a submarine that I'm titting around with? Yeah, that in itself is a simple system, but when you add it to the, to the big tableau, when you add it to having a draft all the time, I think, oh, what am I giving you? What am I keeping? Well, I'm thinking about Kraken Eyes, when I'm trying to build up a big coral bed, but actually, do you know what? If I don't just draw coral cards, I'm going to get hosed. I'm trying to get my upgrades, but if I don't draw the right colour lamp or, or the right dome thing, oh, oh, then I'm going to get hosed. There's no chance. So there's too much going in. There's like eight different small things to think about every round to get absolutely random cards. And go, oh, well, I didn't, well, you know, as if I was planning for something. You can't plan. You can't have a strategy. You just go, I hope I get those cards. Oh, I didn't. It, it is akin to Snap. Uh, no. And then people can actually deny you those cards. People can, like, take cards that may necessarily not be the best for them with their extra cards that they can lay. But very simple. I'm not saying it's strategic or in any way, shape, or form. I would say slightly tactical, but I just enjoyed the. Sometimes I just enjoy a game for, for what it does. It looks beautiful on the table. I liked upgrading things, I liked building the seabed. I thought it was funny when people didn't get the cars that they needed, namely you. <laughs> yeah, I, I just found it in, inoffensive. It's 45 to 60 minutes of zero strategy, very light tactics, incredibly random, and people can just get hosed. It, it, I'm going to talk about a game in two seconds, which is five minutes long, in which that can happen. Great. It's five minutes long. If I get hosed, that is funny. <laughs> if I get hosed in a game that can go an hour, and I did play it a couple of times over the weekend, oh, I'm just like, oh, this game is just bad. Okay. I, it gets away with, I think, murder because it looks nice, and it does look nice. I'm not, yeah, the production quality is fantastic, but in terms of a game, it's, it's not a good game, mate. It's just terrible. Well, last, my, my last thought, just the, the scenario that we had, I felt that. Possibly I played the best game. I felt that I got my upgrades early, or, or I was lucky enough to, to play the best game. I felt I got my upgrades in early. I felt that I was collecting more fish than anybody. I've, I had more divers. I had I had more of everything apart from. than ev- anybody else, and I, apart from coral. And I got hosed with the coral. And normally I'd be absolutely fuming. I'd be like, I played that bad, don't you? How dare you? But in this one, I was like, how, how did you win? Ah, all right, okay, fair enough. I still enjoyed the game. That's the way I felt about Oceanus. Yeah, it is. It is incredibly lucky. Do you know that. what? You could have gone for a forty-five minute nap and had exactly the same experience. <laughs> oh, it was nice. It was relaxing. I needed a forty-five I minute off. nap. I had a nice dream about Tottenham winning the Premier League. Good night. As exciting as an afternoon and nap, Oceanus. We all love those dreams. <laughs> well, no, 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 we don't. But Connick did beat Wasps today. Depending on how much you like afternoon beat Wasps. Come on, but that's a dream come true too. Right, anyway, moving on to a game that's random and cruddy and dictated by the card draw and yet manages to be quick and funny, Fuji Flush. It's, again, another Essen 2016 release. It's the quick card game which you get a hand of cards, the number of cards you get dependent upon player count. You play a card to the table. You're hoping that card will still be in front of you by the time it gets around to your turn again. If it is, it's discarded to the middle and you don't have to draw again. And the first player to get rid of all their cards wins the game. The cards are numbered from 1 up to, I'm going to say 22. I can't remember exactly. I was quite drunk playing the game the first time. I played it a few times. <laughs> Let's say I play a 2 in front of me. If anyone plays a card higher than a 2 after me, my card gets thrown in the middle and I have to draw another card. So I haven't got rid of a card. 
However, if someone else plays a two, our twos now become fours. If someone else plays a two after that, now all of our twos are sixes. Although if someone plays a six, that doesn't add to it. It's got to be a two to add to it. And what this creates is the ability for you to have a hand of cruddy cards and yet for them to become quite powerful, at least in the early game. Whereby, let's say someone's played an eight to my right, but I play a three, Rachel plays a three, Natalie plays a three, suddenly they're all nines. Look, we've got nines, that's higher than an eight. Your, your eights just got thrown away by a bunch of threes. So you form very temporary alliances with each other. You can go from a position of weakness to a kind of a position of strength, or at least what will happen then is if we've all got threes and there are nines, someone will waste the high card just to get rid of all our threes because a it's a good play for them because we're not all losing cards but secondly uh, you're drawing a high card out of the game just for threes and that could be play look there's, there's no strategy to it really honestly people might pretend there is at the end of the day though when you get down to your last card your last card is either going to get you out or it isn't going to get you out and there's not a lot you can do about that but for the five minutes you're playing before that, it is funny. It's funny to stitch people up. It's hilarious if someone's played a high card and someone has got the second 12 or something. It's a 24 and it kills the high card and they think they're going to win. Five minutes of laughter, screwage, random crap I can take. And Fuji Flush delivers that. So is it a good game? It reminds me of, we talked about five cucumbers before, five gherkins on this show, where it's not a good game, but it's a fun experience. And that's what I found with Fuji Flush. I agree, actually. I, I quite I quite like Fuji Flush. Every now and again, Lloyd just forces me to play one of these trick-taking games. And I never really understand what I should be doing and what I shouldn't be doing. This one, I think I've came, I came the closest to actually understanding what I should be doing in a trick-taking game. And you're right, it was fun. I didn't really... I don't think I won a game at all, but I had fun playing it. And it was nice to screw people over occasionally. Nice to join up with people to screw other people over yeah i agree it was a nice fun easy to get into probably easy to forget game did you get 10 times the amount of fun out of Oceanos that you got out of fuji flush i had 10 times the amount of serenity and <laughs> nap time <laughs> god move us on <laughs> okay so probably the only truly long game i've played um while i was there was lords of zidit it's a game that ronan has always been egging me on to play and finally got to play it it's a movement programming game you're going to program your actions and the actions are you're going to move from city to city you're going to collect different soldiers and why are you doing this well you're doing it to free the cities from monsters and there is a backstory i think it's set in the seasons world and to free the city you're going to have to play specific soldiers and each victory is going to allow you to have two of the three rewards that are available. The rewards are, are Bard Tales, which is basically an area control for each of the area. Uh, first will get a certain amount of points, second will get a certain amount of points. You've got Wealth, basically you're taking money behind your screen, and you've got Guilds, uh, Wizards Guilds, and this this is a all again, it's area control. And again, this is about area control, but only one person can be in in each area so it's a land grab as Ronan described it in the game why are you trying to do this because these are how the game will be won or lost the order is is variable in which you score them but I'm going to talk about our game we have had a five player game in which we started by scoring the bards the bards tails and then the first two people because it was a five player game 
the, sorry, the bottom two people, because it was a five-player game, dropped out at that stage. Next, we moved on to the money. And at that stage, the person with the least money out of the three that advanced was ruled out of the game. And then it went on to the, the final stage, where there's just two people and the person who had the most of the Wizards Guilds was crowned the winner. Um, Lords of Zedit, I thought it looked... Really nice, really beautiful game. I, I enjoyed the the planning aspect of it. It was always looking ahead, where what people are going to do, what's that person going to do. I, I quite enjoyed. One thing I didn't mention is you always know where that once you free a city, another city and another monster is going to come out, and you can you can see in advance where they're going to come out. But I thought it was very easy to have nothing rounds in this game. Even when you're trying to read other players, if someone just does something random or he's just better at the game than you, you, you can have multiple uh, rounds where you just do nothing. One player uh, who, who was following me, and I was just obviously doing weird things because she just couldn't read what I was about to do next. She had three rounds where she literally did nothing. I felt uncomfortable. She was just so frustrated. She was calling me all the names under the sun. Yeah, it's a bit funny, but I really did feel uncomfortable. And I just, I really didn't want to do. So I started doing things that I thought that she wouldn't guess that I'd be doing just to get out of the way. And she was second guessing that as well. Uh, it was, I actually felt really bad and it, it, made, it made the game a bit horrible for me. I hate the final scoring. I hate the final scoring. I knew that I could only beat one person if I got to the final. The person who was last going into that knew that they couldn't win the game. I hate games like that. I don't want to play for second. I don't want to play to play for third. I want to play to win. And if I know I can't win the game, it just ruins it. It absolutely ruins it for me. I've got to say it, Ronan. I know you're a big fan of this game, and I really thank you for teaching it, and you taught it really well. I, all, I would say I despised it. I absolutely despised it. Yeah, I knew you weren't having fun. <laughs> <laughs> this was the hit of uh, four lobster cons ago, two years ago, 2014 when it came out. It was getting played a fair amount at LobsterCon. Not as much as Terraform in Mars was this time around, which we're not going to talk about because we'll probably do a big review of it. Good God, that was getting played everywhere. But it, it was the hit of, of a couple of years ago. I, I am going to say it, it was probably the wrong time and the wrong type of game because <laughs> there was a bit tired and a bit worn down and a game like that where you can get hosed and where if things stop going your way what you have to do is not come up with the first plan and reject it and then take the second plan but reject the second plan and then take go for a third plan or accept a wasted turn and go i am there's too many people around here i can't read what's going on I just have to run away because what happens is you'll activate your six actions in turn order. So we'll go one, 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 two, 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 three, 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 three. If you're following behind someone, it's possible they'll them and the person in front of them might take the two last uh, soldiers out of an area, and then suddenly the area is empty, and you find yourself in a city taking an action doing nothing. Or if someone goes and kills a monster before you that you've planned to get to, and they're ahead of you in turn order, suddenly you're doing nothing. And you can just end up running around activating cities that can't be activated anymore. You then have to look at, because the stacks show you what cities are going to activate next. You then have to look at them and go, right, that's where I have to go because this place is getting hosed. And there's no one nearer than like City 16, which is coming out next. I'm just going to head straight to City 16 and then I'll be in position there and then I'll start rebuilding my turn again. It might require a bit of knowledge of the game to think ahead like that. But 
for me, Lords of Zidit is actually a pretty light game. Everything you do is pretty simple. And it's the interaction between the players that brings in that kind of randomness. I will say that having the Wizard's Tower, the Wizard's Tower is the only scoring that's completely obvious because you have everyone has a limited number of, of sort of tower stories, tower levels. And you can see if someone's got five left and I've got one left, well, I'm clearly I'm going to beat them on that because we can see it. I hate it when that's the last scoring. It doesn't really work for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in fact, it's the worst scoring of all three because it's the one that's obvious. Even if it, it was the first scoring, yeah. mate, you look at it and you go, it doesn't matter what I do with my bards and my gold because I can never catch up on those. So that scoring, I don't like. But compared to the whole rest of the game, I, I do think it's an excellent game. I, I just think maybe wrong time, wrong place. Wrong time, wrong place. And I think you're absolutely right. The fact that it was the the final scoring, even... Though I knew and other people knew that that they had to get to certain areas because you can only build the wizard towers in in each separate area, and it's just if if the things don't come out to like just to suit you to into those areas, once the first bit of land grabbing has been done and the board tightens up a little bit, it's very difficult to actually get to those areas and score them with the wizard's towers. So it just found I just found that a little bit frustrating, but yeah, having that as the final goal was possibly part of the the issue. I don't know why you can't just build on top of each other's towers. Like, why can't that be the same as the bards, where you're sort of vying for supremacy and just build build over people? So I don't under, I didn't understand why that was so sort of finite and absolute. It does add a bit of tactics to it because the monsters that are going to come out are the cities that have been out previously. So if you see that, I don't know, cities 11, 15, and 20 are the only ones that haven't got sorcerer's towers, you have to keep an eye on them. And you have to go, right, that's where the soldiers are. That's roughly when that's going to come out. I need to be in that area when that comes out. That's, And I think I'm going too deep into the game, to be honest with you, because it, it can be played at sort of a light, medium level, and everyone just have some fun with it. Sometimes you get blocked. You end up cursing each other and going, ah! screw you my whole turn I plan to go and kill that and you've killed it ahead of me or when you exactly follow the person who's one ahead of you <laughs> you know I do try to explain to people it's, it's actually a pretty light game so don't take it too seriously it won't last longer than an hour and a half with the full five players that's the tightest board you can get when you have three players it reduces in size the board and it reduces in time but for the full five players obviously it's tighter when you play with four there's a bit more leeway especially on the sorcerer towers and they don't all get filled up like that I don't know I find myself defending it because I do really enjoy it and I just hope you'll give it another go I yeah I will get I will definitely give it another go because or because I didn't like it so much like I want to know sort of more about the game I want to know why I, why I didn't like it so much but I think it started as I said with just me being uncomfortable because I was the person sort of hoovering up all the the last soldiers in each in each city in front of somebody else and I got the like monsters in front of her and you know, it really made me feel uncomfortable <laughs> and then there's a sort of realization that I pretty much couldn't win the game two three rounds from the end it, it deflated me like ugh, why am I playing this I can't now I now I can't win so yeah it, it probably was the perfect storm of like things not to do like not to have the wizards towers as the last one and not to be starting it at that time of night and maybe a bit of sort of good luck and bad luck from my part i definitely i'll give it another go mate and uh hopefully it will shine a little bit more right 
there's a funny little one, Sean, that came out, a little game from FFG, which I kind of dismissed. I think it, it came out at the same time as, yeah, they've done that Cosmic Encounter Game of Thrones game, which I've just got thrown away because I hate Cosmic Encounter. But this one is not that, but it's called Hang to the King. And for some reason, they all got embroiled and I just didn't look at it. And I love me a Game of Thrones game, so I don't know why, but I had ignored Hand of the King, as I think some pe- other people I know had. But it's a nice abstract spatial kind of movement game with some special powers and a hint of game of thrones flavor and this was also one of the sleeper hits of of the convention how does it work you got a bunch of square cards that are laid out in a square grid with one gap the cards represent characters from the different families in a game of thrones now there are a varying number of cards per family for the starks there's like seven or eight of them the tullies there's only two of them and for every family in between each has got a different number the brathians the targaryen the lannisters whoever it may be now on your turn wherever the space is in the grid you choose a card any number of spaces away but in an orthogonal direction and you're going to land on that card and make it the space and you're going to take that card you're also going to take every card of the same house that you've leapt over to get to it. So if I'm on the left-hand side and I jump all the way across over to Ned Stark on the right-hand side and I jump over Arya and Bran, I get to take all three Stark cards and keep them in front of me. At the end of the game, whoever has the majority of houses with the majority of cards is going to win. Now, I've only played it once in a pair partnership variant whereby like players one and three are together and players two or four together. You don't add together your characters, but you add together the houses that you've got the majority in. So it works really well. I, I don't know how it plays in the other way, but this was good fun. What you're doing is you're thinking about, all right, I might want to go there and I might want to click three Starks. That puts me in a good position for Starks. However... I might be setting up the next player for a good move. And then where they are, are they setting up my partner will be after them for another good move? It's all very simple. It's just orthogonal movements, but you're having to think ahead. The other part of it is that when you pick up the last card of any house, you get to choose from a range of personality cards, which are separate from this grid, and they all have special powers. So Shay might be in there and she might make Tyrion Lannister worth two cards rather than just one as normal or Illin Payne might be in there and he might be able to remove Ned Stark from the game or just little flavour things like Jack and Hagar gets to kill a load of cards and take them out and it's a little bit of planning ahead a little bit of what majorities I'm going for what am I not setting the other players up for and definitely am I not setting them up to take the last card of a house because that will trigger a character and although they're kind of fairly minor powers situationally they can be powerful and in a game where it's all about balance and abstract those little powers can tip the balance it only took about 20 minutes to play it was really good fun I saw it got played a few times and keep an eye out for Hand of the King if you get a chance give it a go because there's a nice little game in there yeah, Ronan, I'm I'm really glad that you like this one because I it completely bypassed me. And when you mentioned it as one of the games that you'd played at Eastbourne, I had a little snifter at it. I really like the sound of it. I, I like this the old the old spatial awareness and the trying to amass the same families. But I think what elevates it for me is those companion personality cards that they're just edge it above the norm or what appears to be the norm for me i also really like the artwork that sort of cartoony feel but you know who all the characters are instantly just by just by looking at it. and yeah i'm quite excited to play this one it does put out the crazy trick of making the tullies cards individually the most powerful cards i mean who designed that 
because only two of them. Because there's so there's so few of them. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, but yeah, you're trying to avoid a tully at all costs. It's very funny. Yeah, it's just got enough to think about that you're tickling ahead, and enough that you're planning a couple of moves ahead. But actually, one of the nice things the partnership game is that each person gets one raven. You're not allowed to talk to your partner unless you play your one raven for the whole game and then you can have a quick conversation about tactics but obviously the other two get to listen to you so you, you can't pre-plan too much you can't you might think your partner's going to do something and then they're going to do something else but yeah hand of the king a good fun quick game sean your final one for this episode is an eastbourne tradition it is an Eastbourne tradition. It's uh, a game that uh, myself and Natalie will always play, I think, with Chris Marling. And it is The Dwarfs. And we've talked about it before in previous uh, Eastbourne shows. But what was different about this year, and why I want to talk about it, is uh, Chris actually had one of the expansions, or part of one of the expansions in, the, in there. Now, the r- whole range of expansions came out for the English game uh, to Essen this year. But this this one particular, and I can't for the life of me remember the name of it, and I've even looked on BGG, I can't work out which one it is. So we'll have to ask Chris about what one it is. You're the best but podcast it, ever, but I am the best. I am the know. best. Um, essentially, what it does is it adds a timing element to the game so whereas before it was starting because we played it quite a few times with Chris we were starting to get quite good here we knew what to do and what not to do just a very brief explanation is that you are fighting against a sort of plight that's uh, spreading across the lands and the plight is dark elves orcs and trolls as the game evolves they're going to spread across the land and you've, you've basically got complete some amount of tasks before they get to the central area and overwhelm it so whereas normally you, you sort of plod through you decide what tasks to do and you kind of you can leave them for a little while while you do other things and you prioritize now the main tasks uh, are were all timed so every time something came out it might have sort of five cubes on it so that'll be five turns you've got to do that or something horrible will happen so all of a sudden it's even more of a choice between like do we do we get that done do we take that really horrible thing knowing that in five turns that's gone anyway and what it made was a very tense finale to the game which maybe the last time it kind of lacked because we were getting better at it and I think such a simple change was so effective and that's why I wanted to talk about it and it just shows you that expansions don't have and we've talked about this in the past they don't have to be all encompassing they don't have to completely fundamentally change the game but maybe a simple tweak can work wonders nice and I've still never played it and I'm still not sure why. I love a co-op, but I don't mind the fantasy theme. I I'm always seem to be doing something else whenever you guys line this up. So I'm still intrigued, mate. And uh, these Eastbourne traditions, like I got my traditional game of Yido in, got absolutely hosed, but it's all good. It's, all, it's nice that these traditions are kicking off. Yeah, it is. And uh, this this time we were joined by John and Hella, and there were some uh, interesting discussions <laughs> going on. One of those games that is all about the economy of what you're trying to do. What is the best economy? What's the what's going to save you the least amount of time to do stuff? And and there are different choices. There are different things you can do that that are going to make either quicker or elongate the process. And yeah, and it, it does make some some interesting conversations, shall we say? <laughs> I'm from what you're telling about the game that it's not perfect information which is good you know you can't say that's definitely the best move because you're just not quite sure where the enemies are going to come from and sometimes you have to go on a hunt or what have you so 
That's it, yeah. I love people you're arguing way, about the best options. move in an, an imperfect information game. I'm probably the worst person in the world for it. Uh, yeah, having played the Grizzled recently and been handed the mute card before we even began on our third playthrough because I was being a bit of a tyrant. I, oh, yeah, I can understand. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll move away from me and go up, guys. Lorenzo Il Magnifico. Now, with the preview this, Sean spoke about it in his Essen report, so we'll go over this quickly. It is the Euro-style game in which you're running your own family in Florence in uh, Renaissance times. You're going to be getting lands, hiring personalities, building buildings, and going on business ventures in order to score points over six rounds, all while they're trying to appease the church. It's work placement. There's dice which are rolled and they add the values to the workers for everyone's workers. So there's no individuality there. And it's like an hour and a half of good thinky Euro gaming. I hadn't given my thoughts on it yet. I don't think, Sean. This, I think I'm going to put in there with one of the top five hits off the con. I'm not sure it was played that much, but I also not sure that I met anyone who didn't enjoy their play of it. Even hardened Euro Easters who had moved on and want to see something different nowadays playing Swedish Parliament or something mental like that was saying it kind of reminds you of an, an older style game where you have to throw everything at the wall and see what's stuck it's not wide open there is variety and certainly when you start building up your own tableau of cards you're going to be going your own way but it's one of those games that's constantly throwing obstacles at you but giving you ways to think around it to get where you want to go but being punishing if you don't do that well now I played horrifically both times at this in Eastbourne and came last both times. <laughs> both times I ran out of servants, which means that one of your four workers each turn is absolutely useless. And I never got my servants back and I just got into a downward spiral. But actually, I quite like that about a game that it is decently punishing. It's not been baby gloved. I'm still thoroughly enjoying it after oh, I'm probably five or six plays in now. I'm still thoroughly awful at it, which might be some of the enjoyment in that I'm enjoying the challenge. But this is a rock solid Euro game this year. Definitely one of the best Euros of the year for me. This will be in contention for my top five of 2016 come the end of year show. I'm not sure it'll make it, but it's definitely up there with the contenders. Yeah, right. And so yeah, as I said in, in my uh, Essen report from Essen itself, I really, really enjoyed this game. can be brutal at times. I think, as you said, Roland, there are avenues to explore. There are plenty to consider. You've got to consider the the faith track. You've got to, as you found out, you've got to make sure you keep an eye on your resources because the resources are absolutely critical in this servants and money. I think it plays quickly. Given the depth of the game, and it is a tough game, it's a tough Euro game, but I think it does, it cracks along at a reasonable place. And I, I, I really don't think it outstays its welcome. I like that you can see where you went wrong. There's sometimes you play games and you're just like, I have no, I, what would I do different next time? Oceanos. Oceanos. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose the only negative thing is the interaction is is, is pretty much just a negative interaction game. It's not you're not doing anything to it's help. Part of the whole tightness, all. though, isn't but, it? Someone, but it's part. Yeah, it's you part. You have to prioritise yeah. those cards. So, I want that card, that card, and that card. 
at least two of the three are going to be uh, gone by the time I get to them. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. People are going to swipe things from under your nose on a, on a literally round-by-round round basis, and you have to be prepared for that. Right up there, as Roland said, it's, it's going to be in contention. I really enjoyed my games of it, and uh, yeah, I want to play it a bit more. But, uh, yeah, Lorenzo Magnifico, good game. Good Euro, done well. It is a good Euro, done well. This theory that you can look back at where you've gone wrong and possibly improve. Tell me how I run out of servants twice in a row with no way of getting <laughs> Honestly, like... If you're a buffoon, it doesn't help. <laughs> Drunk and tired buffoon. Oh, oh, mate, I played so badly. It was almost comical if I hadn't started crying. Um, that's it. That's the 12 games covered in, in relatively snappy fashion. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> Who'd have thought? We're going to see you out next. Do we have episode 78 all wrapped up? And Ronan, for once in our lives, we actually did manage to stick on script and we were quite snappy-ish. Snappy-ish, on flick, I would go so far to say, getting down with the kids. I think that's a makeup turn. Don't quote me. I've got teenage daughters. Yes, we were there, Sean. We hope you enjoyed that quick rundown of a dozen games. Coming next, we are going to bring those six promised reviews from SN2016 games. Then we're going to go into more festive jollities, Sean. What special episodes have we got planned? We are planning to bring you our end of the year show. Now, whether that involves bringing other people along, we're not quite sure yet, but we will be certainly running down some of our favourites and not-so-favourites of the year gone by. Indeed, and we are going to be starting to bring you our top 50 games each of all time. They will be interspersed between other episodes. There won't be one in the series, but um, we're going to give you uh, 5041, as mentioned previously, fairly soon and building down from there. And that will give you an idea of our absolute favourite games of all time at the moment. I'm quite excited for that, Sean, because we are not telling each other our lists, are we? We are not. But I think we probably guess most of it anyway. Oh, don't ruin the suspense. Come on, man. <laughs> Not that for. Okay, Sean, see us out. Okay, as ever, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there for gaming goodness in all manner of formats. If you wish to contact us, well, our email address is thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page and we are on Twitter and also Instagram. If you wish to come along and have a little chat with us on Board Game Geek, we have a Board Game Geek Guild, and we will always reply to anything posted as quickly as we can and hopefully have a conversation with you there. If you wish to download the episodes, as always, it is Stitcher, iTunes, and Podbean. Thanks for listening, and hope to catch you next time. Music by E. Aaron. Boy, 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 boy,